the courage to stand up or do something or put your own life, be willing to give up your own life to save someone else. And I think, of course, you know, it, it goes even deeper than that. I think the reason that, that, that those kinds of stories appeal to all of us probably goes back to Christ. Whether one is Christian or not, I think it goes back <laughs> further than that uh, to a promise that was made. And so I think that's why you know, on a deeper level that I connect and that and most of us connect to those stories of someone willing to, to give their life for someone else. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall and excited to be able to get to know uh, we're basically besties is what uh, I decided before we started recording. Uh, Matt Whitaker is his name. That's that and that he's from Orem is all I know about him. But you ever find that person, that kindred spirit where you're like, yeah, he created an entire room in his house to be able to watch movies. And you just know that you're going to like him beyond that. Uh, that's what Matt is to me. And I'm excited for all of us to kind of get to know him a little bit better. Thanks for being here, Matt. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to see you, Richard. Now, uh, now let me ask you, Matt. Uh, uh, we're obviously going to talk about this uh, Helmut Hubner story that you have been involved in uh, making available for people to learn about this amazing, incredible individual. But before we do that, I would love to know the existential question of who is Matt Whitaker? Where, where are you from? What do you do? Uh, are, are you a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Let's give a little background to you. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, yes, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I grew up in a little, tiny little community up in Northern California and uh, thought I was going to be, well, what I really wanted to be was an actor uh-huh. um, or at least a, a movie star. I'm not sure if I really wanted to be an actor, but I wanted to be a movie star. Uh, actually went into, uh, you know, it was, did all the drama things in high school and uh, went to BYU and thinking, you know, I was going to, was a drama major, was one of those drama M- M- MDT folks or? No, or, I, no, I, no. I, I can't sing or dance, but uh, <laughs> I was, I was, I was in the plays. Yeah. And, I did the uh, T, not I, the M nor the D, just the T. Just, just, the, that's right. <laughs> and uh, actually went on a, went on a mission. I served a mission in, in the Paris, France mission. And wow. Um, the plan was that I would go, go on my mission and I would get back and I was going to move to New York and give myself like five years to try and make it as an actor. Um, something happened while I was on my mission, a couple things. One was, uh, I became a little more self-aware and realized I wasn't that great of an actor. (laughs) The other thing was that I realized also that it would be really tough to make it as make a living as an actor and be an active member of the church, frankly. Mm. It's just, it's already tough to make a living as an actor, but to to be limited on the kind of roles that I may or may not be able to take and everything. And so I, that's when I started thinking, you know what, I wonder if I'm better on the other side of the camera. And so when I got back from my mission, I went back to BYU instead of going to New York, but um, decided to go, instead of going into theater and acting, to go into the film program. So I came through the film program at BYU, thankfully, found an amazing woman, got married while I was there. And so I've got an incredible wife and three adult children. And the best thing in the world is that I'm a grandpa now. I have almost one-year-old granddaughter and it's transcendent. It's the best thing Uh, So a couple questions about that. Have you been back to your mission uh, since you left? Yes. Uh, In fact, many times I've been blessed. Uh, My work, just working in the film business and being a filmmaker 
Um, I've, I've been blessed to travel all over, all over the world a lot. And, and for some reason I'm in Europe quite often and any, it doesn't, Europe's a small little place, mm -hmm. <laughs> really, you know? Uh, so anytime I'm in Europe, it's basically, okay, so how can I get to France? Yeah. Even if the shoot that we're on is in the UK or in Germany, or, you know, I've been to obviously with this project, been over to Germany quite a few times. I always try and find a way to make it to France. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just gotta, I gotta go, uh, there's a lunch. I got to do lunch over in Paris real quick. Uh, guys, I'll be back. That's right. I'll be back. Uh, I would love it if you would name drop a little bit, maybe either people that you've worked with or a project that you've worked on previous uh, to the Helmut Hubner project that we're going to be speaking a lot about in this episode. Maybe other things that people would have seen. Oh, I didn't know that he worked on that or is involved yeah. with that or knows that guy. Well, yeah. Um, and I Living in Utah made a decision to, to at a certain point, kept thinking initially that we'd be moving down to LA, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just for the work, but have been really busy here, which has been great. Um, and so the projects that I work on are things that kind of came out of, of Utah, most of them. Um, I wrote the script for a world, another World War II film called Saints and Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, which the, the OG are, Saints and Soldiers? The OG, yes. Okay. okay. The, the first Saints and Soldiers film. Um Wrote the uh, second and the third Work in the Glory films, which okay. uh, uh, beautiful little films. Not many people saw them, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I was actually recent. Well, in the last uh, ten years or so, I worked for about uh, five years at uh, Bonneville Communications, and so I was heavily involved in the "I'm a Mormon" campaign. Oh, so if you got okay. to see any any of those, about two hundred those little mini docs that we did about people. That was, that was a chance where I was, I was traveling all over the world. Wow. That's awesome. And it's fun to do a bunch of work like that, that can't be spoken about or shared anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're not Mormon anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but that was actually one of the most rewarding projects I've ever worked on. It was, yeah. it was just so much fun. And I feel like it had an impact. I feel like it gave uh, absolutely. people I mean, jo jokes aside, uh, obviously, because now we're, we're uh, recommended to say members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What a, a massively visible project of the I'm a Mormon campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah internationally and nationally and and people feeling seen and heard. And, oh, if that guy is or that woman is, you, you bet. I'm on board. I can do that. Yeah, heck, we were on the Stephen Colbert show. He showed him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he says, yeah. why can't Catholics be this cool? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. So uh then you get you get this little uh this little itch and this little bug to do Helmut Hubner. Uh not not a comedy, uh, just so everyone knows. If you're unfamiliar with the story, um, that's probably a horrible way to lead into it, but uh it, this is an amazing life led. Uh, that I I am grateful that the story is being more told. I think it is a story that it has and is told, but to make it more widely available and and understandable and palatable, I guess for yeah. folks, I'm excited that you're doing this project. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's it's a it's one of those stories that, uh, and I actually found the story about 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago. Out of I was doing a, a, a documentary for PBS, a different World War II documentary. That's kind of my thing. I, my dad was a bomber pilot in World War II. I've just been always fascinated with it. I was I was doing another World War II project, a little documentary, and and found out that the about heard about this group and found out the last surviving member of this teenage resistance group in Nazi Germany just lived about forty five minutes away. Jeez. So looked him up in the phone book. 
called him up and asked if we could come up and meet with them. And he said, yes. And so that's where, that's where this story started was that many years ago. I actually did a, a PBS documentary on it called truth and conviction uh-huh. um, about this 16 year old kid in Nazi Germany who led a resistance group of other teenagers and stood up to Hitler and did this PBS documentary thought, okay, I'm going to be done. Uh, yeah. You, you know what, you know what, there's a couple of things about this that I love. Uh, you have elevator pitched what you did in such a way that it's so concise that it just, it just seems sort of nonchalant, but it's kind of hilarious. 20 <laughs> years ago, you were learning about world war two and you're like, Hey, this guy lives close. This guy who helped lead a resistance. So I called him and I went and I chatted with him and, and that was great. And that was the start of it. And then also you're like, yeah, so then, uh, you know, I did a documentary and it, it talks, you know, I think maybe there's a little bit more meat on the bones. I'd yeah. like to find a little bit uh, more about that. So first of all, you say, okay, this teenage kid led a resistance uh, against Hitler. So maybe let's unpack that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, he was, uh, again, Helmut Hubner, 16 years old, lived in Hamburg, was a member of the church there. He was he was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm sure he called himself a Mormon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, part of a little branch there, you know, he was actually on the Nazi party fast track, man. He was... He was he was in the Hitler Youth, of course. He worked. He had a job at the at the city hall. Worked for the government uh, there. Even as a sixteen year old, he graduated early. You know, finished his his studies early and and, and was there. Um, his brother actually was his older brother, who was a German soldier serving in the in the army in France. Smuggled home this shortwave radio. Um, and if if you know, at the time in Nazi Germany, you had the People's Radio. And that's all you could listen to it. It got about three stations and all you heard was what Hitler or Joseph Goebbels wanted you to hear, you know, essentially uh, just the, the, the pro-war propaganda, yeah, the, the propaganda, the, the propaganda that, that, that they wanted you to hear. And the war was going, the war had already started. This was 41 when this happened. And mm-hmm. so they were already in the war and all they were, all these, everybody was hearing was all, all the lies, all the positive thing and uh, positive things that, that, that uh, the, the Nazis were doing and they were winning in every battle and everything. Well, this kid turns on this, the shortwave radio and, and starts hearing the BBC at the time was broadcasting in the German language. And, they, and because it was shortwave, they could get through. So if people had shortwave radios, which was a capital offense, you could be, technically you could be executed wow. <laughs> for, for even listening to that. Um, but he did it. And then he started hearing things and thinking, wait a minute, this sounds like the truth to me. This sounds like because there he would hear the 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 BBC you know saying talking about wins but also British losses you know and this is and he started realizing there's a lot more here than I'm getting from what I've been hearing my whole life mm-hmm. and um, so he recognized that another thing happened around the same time and that was that they had a uh, he had a, a friend who was Jewish who had actually joined the church so there was uh, in their little branch there was one Jewish member of the church. And um, the branch president, who was a really good, faithful member of the church, was also a devout Nazi. Mm. Um, and he uh, he put a sign up outside the church doors that said no Jews allowed, knowing that there was just this one Jewish member. Um, and then so shortly thereafter, his friend, whose name was Salomon, was, was arrested, taken by the Gestapo, and eventually ended up in a concentration camp. That mm. was also kind of a last straw for him. He's getting the truth from the radio. His friend, his Jewish friend disappears. And so he decides that he's going to do something about it. 
I like to say he picked up the only weapon he knew how to use, which was a typewriter. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that, uh, so he was, he was the branch secretary. So the branch president would have him typing letters to the soldiers that were serving from the branch. Okay. And so he took that typewriter home and started typing up anti, anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi uh, leaflets and flyers. He's listening to the BBC, getting information there because he worked at the city hall he had access, they, that's where they had an archive of banned books, banned literature, that kind of thing. And so he had access to that. He was taking those and reading them. He was putting together his own thoughts and everything like that. And then started creating these incredibly well-written leaflets that he would then sneak out at night and put them out on the streets of, of, uh, of Hamburg at night. And uh, if you read some of these, because a bunch of them were turned in to the Gestapo, thankfully actually now, because we have records of, of what he wrote, at least some of them, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, he did that for a while by himself. And then that wasn't enough. And so he recruited his two best friends from church uh, to a 17 year old friend named Carl and a, and a 15 year old friend named Rudy. And um, Carl is the one that I met. Carl's the one that I called up on the phone and, uh, and to see if he would, you know, talk to us. And, and he did. And we actually, you know, on June 6th, 2001, which for me, I'm a, I'm a date, you know, I'm, dates sure. are important to me. That's sure. D-Day. Um, yeah. And <laughs> we sat down with cameras rolling and interviewed Carl and man, it, it just changed my life. It, what he, the story that he told. Let's take a break real quick. When we come back in the second block, I want to pick it up right there. Visiting with Carl, June 6, 2001. We're going to go in the Wayback Machine and pick it up right back there. Coming back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> bestdjinutah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast and it's beautiful. So let's make sure your computer's ready to run it. Bring your PC into any PC Laptops right now at PCLaptops.com. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always become a Patreon saint. You can go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. And with your money, you can get access to all of the old, old, old episodes. I mean, we're in the 630s, people. There are the first 300 episodes, which are really just accessible uh, through our Patreon page. You can get them a different way, but it's a real pain. Super easy if you become a Patreon saint. Uh, Also, you get to see the fantastic backdrop for the video uh, of Matt's if you become a Patreon saint, because you can only see the video if you're a part of that. Uh, secret but not sacred Facebook group that all the Patreon saints are hanging out. So check that out. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. June 6th, 2001. 
sitting down with Carl. Hey, Carl, uh, learned about your story. Want to come over to your house? At this point, he's got to be of age, a considerable yeah. age. He was in his late 70s at the time. Okay. I think he was 78, if I remember correctly, when uh, <clears throat> when we when we had that first interview with him. And uh, and like I mentioned, you know, I know that he had told it a lot of time. I know he told the story before, you know, mm-hmm. it, sure. it felt to me like it was the first time it really, it was just so, I mean, if you get a chance to see that's, you know, that was that, that uh, um, interview was kind of like the, the backbone of the documentary that I did. And if you get a chance to watch it, it is just so compelling. And the thing is, it's, you mentioned at first, this is not a comedy and that's true. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very moving story, but Carl's a hoot, you know, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he, he had a, you know, he had fun, it's it's important to remember to me that these were teenagers when they were doing this and they were, you know, yes, they understood the gravity of what they were doing, but they were also out to have a good time, you know, and there was some daring to it. And they were, you know, they had crushes on girls, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had zits, they had all those things that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, that teenagers deal with. And, um, and, and that's the way Carl, you know, conveyed the story. And so I've kind of taken that in and that's the way, that's the way I see the story. That's the way I'm trying to share it as well. You know, interesting that you say uh, it feels like maybe the first time that he shared it. You know, there are um, some people that kind of post-war, they don't really talk about it. I think we hear more about this, about like the Korean conflict and and maybe about Vietnam, that these soldiers come home and then they don't really share that story. I would think that would blend a little bit into um, the, the time around World War II. It very well could have been one of the rare times that maybe he shared it. Um, you know, just knowing what I know about kind of people that have been in those intense areas of conflict, it's hard for them to be able to go back to very often. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the way my dad was, you know, my dad was a B-24 bomber pilot and just didn't talk about it for very much at all for years. When he got older, he, after he'd retired and everything, he started sharing his stories. And I think that was similar with Carl, you know, he, he, he reached a point where he's like, you know what, I need to, I need to share this. And so he had written a book uh, with the help of a, of a BYU professor named Alan Keel had written a book. Um, and so he was he was sharing the story at the time that he that he told it to me. Yeah. So so I'm curious, uh, what do you think it is about um, the Helmut Hubner story that spoke so much to you? There's lots of stories um, that as a documentarian that you could you could tell. Certainly your connection with being able to sit down with Carl on that day back in 2001. I mean, that's significant, but still there are thousands, millions of other individual stories. What is it that you, speaks particularly to you about this story? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, why I'm 20 years later, why am I still yeah get over it matt get over it (laughs) hey i've heard that trust me yeah (laughs) um yeah you know it's interesting i've I've asked myself that a number of times why is this so hitting me so hard why is this so deep in my heart and why can't i let it go frankly Mm -hmm. i this is one of i don't have a great answer but this is one of the things that i that i think is the reason i think that there is for me and i think actually across humanity i think that it seems like there's this connection this deep connection to stories of self-sacrifice, hmm. you know, that, that when someone gives their life for someone else, when someone, you know, overcomes our, you know, desperate desire to live in order to stand up for what's right or to save someone else, you know, that kind of thing. I, I can remember. So when, oh man, this is going back. So this would be when I was 14. How old were you in 1982? Were you born yet? I was born. Thank you. But not by much. Couple. Okay. I was two years old. 
two there years you go. old. So I was 14 at the time. Okay. And I can remember uh, there was a, there was a plane crash. There was a plane in Washington, DC that had crashed into the Potomac mm. in January of 1982. It was crashed through the ice there. And, and there was, and I remember watching the news and seeing that the tail of the plane was sticking out and there were like six people clinging to the tail of this plane. And, uh, and this helicopter, you know, a rescue helicopter is coming down and hanging down this lifeline. And each time the plane would come, there was one of the six passengers there that would grab the lifeline and they needed to hand it to somebody else and, and make sure that they had it. And then the, the helicopter would take that person to safety and come back. Every time it came back, he would grab that lifeline and then hand it to somebody else and make sure that they had it, make sure they were okay. Well, by the time, the last time that it came back for him, he had slipped beneath the ice and, mm. and drowned. As a 14 year old, those grainy images, those news images were just like burned into my mind and into my mm. heart. And that, that man in the water who passed the lifeline, you know, it just, it, it just, I could not forget it. All that jumped now, all these years later, me asking myself, why is Helmut's story so deep in my heart? And I realized in a way he was doing the same thing. He found the truth. He decided that was the lifeline that he was trying to pass to other people, you know, and even when after they were captured and he's standing in the highest court in Nazi Germany with his two best friends. It's interesting because Carl told me, Carl said, you know, Carl was a year older. So by the time they were in court, Carl was 18 and and he could see they could all see that the court, for whatever reason, was going after him, trying to put all the blame on Carl because he was the adult. Sure. You know, he was the one that they could really kind of go after. Carl said he watched Helmut notice that. And then Helmut made this decision to take all the, the, the attention, focus all the attention on this stuff, on, on himself. He stood up, just like got in the face of this judge, kind of had, you know, in, in, in church circles, I can refer to it as what I see it as, as a, an Abinadi moment mm -hmm. where he just stood up and got in the face, this 17 year old now, the 17 year old kid getting in the face of this Hitler appointed judge and exposing lies and and really you know just telling the truth there in this court taking all the blame on himself and it worked he was sentenced to death um his two friends they were sentenced to years of hard labor but they lived hmm. you know and so i can remember carl telling me you know he he saved my life so anyway that for me just that that the courage to stand up or do something or put your own life um be willing to give up your own life to save someone else. And I think, of course, you know, it, it goes even deeper than that. I think the reason that, that, that those kinds of stories appeal to all of us probably goes back to Christ. Um, whether one is Christian or not, I think mm -hmm. it goes back further than that uh, to a promise that was made. And so I think that's why on a deeper level, that I connect and that and most of us connect to those stories of someone willing to, to give their life for someone else. So give I me, think that's me, why I'm still doing it. Give me an idea of sort of how it plays out. Is it, uh, is, you know, is this project, um, which we should tell people, you know, where they're going to be able to find it and all that. Let's take this opportunity right now, tell people what it's called and how they can find it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a four part limited series called truth and conviction and uh, we've partnered with Angel Studios. They're they're the ones that are. If you've seen the Chosen, they're the ones that are that are doing the Chosen, and uh, and we partnered with them. And so they'll be distributing it. So it will be available in a number of venues. But but we're in the in the phase right now where we're you know the cool thing about what they did with the Chosen, you know, is that they crowdfund invested it. You know, mm -hmm. first mm -hmm. time that it'd be done that it had been done like that. So 
crowdfunding it. So instead of just like making a donation and getting a t-shirt or whatever, mm-hmm. people are investing their part owners in the project. And, uh, and so we partnered with them. We're in that phase right now. We're planning on shooting it next year, actually shooting it in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. Um, we scouted Germany and a lot of other, other countries in Lithuania, uh, the old town in, in Vilnius, the capital looks more like 1941 Hamburg mm. in some ways than Hamburg does now. <laughs> so, so we'll be shooting it over there, planning on next year. And then, uh, and then it should be released through Angel Studios apps. There's probably going to be a limited theatrical release, and then it'll be streaming on you know different streaming platforms. Um, hopefully, beginning end of next year. So people can be as as you said, uh, actual like owners, like hey, I'm a I'm a part of this project. That do we get cool certificates that say we own point zero 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 one percent of the project, or or what yeah. do I get if I give you guys money and say yeah, I believe in this project? What, what do I get? I know yes. that that's horrible, but you know that that's what literally everyone asks about it. What sure, do I get? Yeah. What's in it for me? That's no, no, of course. Well, first of all, yeah, they get equity in the project, you know? So, I mean, they can, they can invest a hundred dollars and they'll mm-hmm. get, you know, a little bit of equity. They can invest $250,000 and they'll get a lot more equity, obviously. Um, and, uh, but the way that it's set up is that once this is profitable, um, our investors will get all of their money back plus 20% before we, as the producers and creators will see anything. So, so they'll get back their 120%. And then after that, we'll, we'll split it, you know, basically split it 50, 50, uh, is essentially, essentially what it is. So that's, that's awesome. the, you know, that's the investment part. And that really is the cool part. I mean, I just see it as like, this is power to the people, man, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Uh, the the traditional kind of Hollywood model um, is spend millions and millions to make a movie and then spend millions and millions and more to try and build an audience for it and hope that people come and see it, you know, in marketing and advertising. Uh, the way Angel's doing is kind of turning that on its head. It's it's saying, okay, let's, let's put our time and resources in building the audience. It's making sure that there's enough of an audience for this. And then if there is, we'll make this movie. And then we already have a built-in audience that we can kind of you know, springboard from there. Um, and so that's, that's the phase that we're in now, but I, I, I frankly, I love it. You know, yeah. I think it's going to transform the way, the way, at least the way that independent films and series get made. Well, and look no further than, as you indicated, the the stuff that Angel Studios has, has done with The Chosen. I mean, the yeah. way that that has been able to just expand and, and blow up and be shared, you know, among so many different groups in so many different places and having the impact that it has had. That's exciting to, to know about that in the show notes for this episode, people will be able to find a direct link so that they can be able to, if they want to put their money where your mouth is, uh, they can go ahead and, and make uh, that kind of pledge and, and donation and find out more about the project, and what the different investors would be. I imagine you would take million dollar donations as well as small, small, small donations as well. Yes, we won't turn we won't turn any of those away. Okay. Yeah. Well, good because I have a million dollars and I've been looking to uh, spend it somewhere. It's burning a hole. What in am my I going to do with this? <laughs> what, what will I do? What will I do with this? Uh, is is that um, is that for you as a uh, as a a filmmaker? Is that sort of proposal uh, more intimidating, differently intimidating for you? 
It's a great question. I don't get that question much, but it's it's definitely different. It's been a learning curve for me because I've spent uh, so much of, of my career and as an independent filmmaker, but also especially on this project, you know, sitting in, in rooms in, in LA or in rooms with very, very wealthy people trying to get million, you know, get a few million here, a few million, a few million there, kind of invest investors. Um, now I'm, I'm doing thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing things like podcasts, interviews, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they have me doing these live streams. I say the angel studios has me doing these live streams every week, building this audience. And, uh, and frankly, yeah, it's a learning curve for me. I had to, I had to kind of figure out that, okay, again, traditionally, we go make a movie and then afterwards we go do the junk. We do, do, do the podcasts and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, try and meet with people and everything like this here. We're doing it beforehand and building that audience. And it's a, um, it's great now because we've got a lot of momentum and the mm-hmm. audience is getting, you know, much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, first uh, couple months <laughs> yeah. doing live streams with 15 people tuning in. Uh, you know? Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if we ever had as low as fifteen, but it was pretty low. <laughs> sure. Yeah. At the beginning of anything, you're like, uh, may maybe not. Like maybe I thought this was, but I don't, yeah. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Anyone there? Yeah. Uh, the the obvious joke is too. We have to get this uh, project underway as soon as possible because Kirby Hayborn can only look like a teenager for so much longer. <laughs> We got to hurry and get that. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Kirby's awesome. Kirby's a friend of mine. Kirby was in saints and soldiers, you know, and uh, the dude is just so funny and so genuine. Yeah. Yeah. I think he actually may have already crossed that threshold into the, okay. Okay. To the, the adult (laughs) actors. Uh, Funny. We we actually are going to be casting it out of the UK. So all of our, all of our actors, most all of them are going to be British actors. We're shooting it in English with a, you know, standard British accent, maybe a little flavor of German mm-hmm. um, on it. Do you, do you find that people get especially curious when they uh, consider the LDS churches interplay with the Nazi party? I think that's sort of a, a side part of this that I I think that enough people nowadays just haven't stopped to consider that that was even a thing, but it was a lot of a thing. It was. Is that, yeah, no, it is, was that, a, is that difficult to kind of make that bridge and that attachment within telling uh, Helmut Huber's story? Well, I and I think that for me, that's one of the most fascinating parts of the story, frankly, personally. You know, it's not what the movie's about. People will watch the movie and, and they may put together, oh, these kids were members of the church. Um, but, you know, it's it's not that we're hiding it in the story, but it's, again, it's not what the movie's about. But from, you know, for me as a Latter-day Saint, it's to 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 see Helmut's interaction with other with other members of his little branch there. You know, like I say, the branch president was was a devout Nazi and would actually even start their 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 sacrament meetings with Heil Hitler. Mm. Um, sometimes would lock the doors and, and have everybody listen to a Hitler speech on the radio. <laughs> so he was, you know, he was all in yeah. uh, as far as party was concerned. But it's also, you know, it's interesting because people would look at Hitler and he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he encouraged people to not do that, he encouraged people to do their, their family history, you know, for very dark reasons. Sure, they were, sure, sure. But, but, you know, members of the church, he even instituted what they, what they called a, a one pot Sunday, I think is a good translation of it. They would, they would abstain from two meals on Sundays and then donate the, that money that they saved to, you know, to help the poor kind of a thing. Hmm. So, you know, again, members of the church are going, Hey, this guy's right in line with us. 
Now, of course, there were a lot of people, a lot of members of the church that, that saw through that. Um, but a lot of times, by the time they saw through it, as Carl said to me, it was too late. You know, they knew that, hey, if I say anything, if I say, if I even whisper it to the wrong person, not only could I be at danger, but my spouse and my kids, you know. So it's, you know, to look at somebody, a 16-year-old kid who stood up and did that, he was also 16. So it's kind of like, I can do this. I'll never get caught. You know, yeah. there may have yeah. been that element to it as well. Yeah. The youthful hubris. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I want to I want to take another break real quick. When we come back, maybe we pick it up right there. There's also three questions that we ask everyone who step into the cultural hall. I'll certainly ask those questions of you as well. Let's take that break and come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always reach out to us, contact at theculturalhall.com. It is an email address that never sleeps. You wake up in the middle of the night and you think, Helmut Hubner, I loved that episode, Richie. I need to tell you all, all of the great things that I thought about that episode, you can do that in the middle of the night, contact at theculturalhall.com, and it won't wake me up. I have those notifications on sleep. Uh, or if you're like, oh, what a great episode, or hey, here's a great suggestion of someone else that you should chat with, or did you know about all of those things, you can send over to contact at theculturalhall.com. We love getting them. It helps us feel like we're not on a live stream with 15 people and that people actually care. So please contact at theculturalhall.com. What do you think it is, uh, Matt, about, um, I, I, I think that we, I think that we pay a proper respect to adults who do these tremendous things, but certainly there is a tradition within the youth uh, of the church. And I'm thinking, you know, specifically here of Helmut Hubner, we're talking about Joseph Smith and others that as, as young individuals, they, they have the zeal. I, you know, I called it a well-intended hubris, maybe, uh, something that, that strikes us just that bit more that we go, Oh, that that's just that much more brave. That is just that much more significant because of their youth. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Carl talked about that. And the way that he referred to it was he said, you know, we grew up, go to church every Sunday. He said, we grew up singing that the, the old traditional Christian hymn, do what is right, let the consequence follow, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And when you think about it, that in, in that context, you know, that's exactly what, what Helmut was trying to do. You know, we, we teach our kids, we grow up, if you've grown up in the faith, uh, you know, we grow up just singing that or, or, or that's being kind of in, inculcated into our, you know, into our beings of, you just got to do what the, do, you just got to do what is right. No matter what, you just got to mm -hmm. do what is right. You know, uh, make the hard choices, make those choices in advance so that when you're being tempted, you know what to do, you know, all those kind of things. And so of course, you know, Helmut, having said all that helmet was still an anomaly, you know, there, there within the church in, in Germany, you, you know, there weren't, many others that were 
you know, especially his age that were doing that, but there weren't many others period mm-hmm. that were, that were doing what he was doing. Um, but, but yeah, I think that is part of our culture and part of our faith that, uh, that youth grow up thinking, I know what's right. I should probably stand up for it. Yeah. But we don't, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think of, as you were saying, do what is right, let the consequence follow. I, I also think of this song, uh, as I have loved you, love one another. And to me, like those two songs, like, that's it. You know, if you can yeah. take all the other things that you're like, oh, but I, you know, what happens when, and the doctrine of this and all these things. And it's like, yeah, but like love other people and then do what is right and stand up for it. And then let whatever, you know, come what may, as far as that goes, like we, I think that as people, we oftentimes sort of pollute or, or bring in so much unnecessary things that if we love one another and do the thing that we know to be right, the world, the church, our communities, all of these things that are genuinely struggling at this time, you know, time of recording 2022, it's been this way for a long time, but especially yeah. it feels like now it, it would make a big difference. Can I add one more, one more hymn to that? Yes. Make it a trifecta. I'm trying to be like Jesus, the primary song. Emphasis on the word trying. Yeah. You know, I think if those three things, those three hymns guide our direction, I think that's, you're right. I think that's what it, and, and, you know, I'm in line with everybody who's failing at that regularly. Sure. Sure. Do you feel like this is a a calling. I mean, this is a, 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 a format where we can kind of talk about the religious and spiritual and being guided and stuff like that. Is it, is it a paycheck or is it a, this is a, you know, when I was born before I came here, they were like, you'll tell the hell in the humor. And you're like, yes, I will do that. Get me down there. Well, you know, again, I, I appreciate this format because yes, there's definitely that element to it that I don't get to talk about very much. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, this hasn't been a paycheck for 20 plus years yet. Um, I can see on the horizon that I'll probably get paid something at some point uh, for this, but this has been definitely has been a mission. Um, oh man, I'm, it's, I'll have to decide how much I <laughs> feel comfortable sharing, but I'll tell you this. Um, uh, to, well, okay. So it was August 13th, 2005. I know exactly where I was. Um, and when, and this doesn't happen to me very often, God, you know, I get my, the answers to my prayers are much more subtle, kind of woven into the fabric of my life, you know, kind of like, oh, okay, this feels right. Mm-hmm. Uh, on August 13th, 2005, the Lord spoke to me in just, you know, very, very clear ways saying, you need to tell this story. You need to direct this, um, go. Wow. <laughs> and so it was so powerful that I went home and, and told my wife, said, you know, this is what happened. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And I, I even warned her. I said, you know, this, this could take a couple of years, hon. <laughs> you know, 17 years later. Yeah. Um, but it, so from that point forward, um, I have been driven. And I also have to say there have been plenty of times when I was curled up in a fetal position saying, what have I done? What am I doing? Yeah, yeah. Wanting to give up. And it's been actually my wife who has been the one that's been saying, come on, you know, remember what you felt, you know, do you still feel that way? Okay. You know, so, so yeah, there, there is that aspect to it. And, and that's the, frankly, the, one of the only reasons that 21 years later, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you about the fact that we're going to be, you know, shooting this film next year. Um, yeah. 
it's uh, it's definitely something that I felt called to do. And I don't want to over, you know, it's not like that I, I'm the only one who could have told this story or sure. anything like that. Um, but for, um, for reasons I don't fully understand, I do feel like I'm supposed to. And so I'm trying to. Um, I know that I have, you know, very good insights into this story. My personal friendship with Carl Heinz Schnibbe for, for 10 to 12 years and wow. hundreds of hours of talking to him about it. We actually took him over to Germany and, and I went with him into some, some of the cells that they were held in after they were arrested are still in existence. Mm. And you can go into them. And he stepped into this cell and looked up through the bars and the windows, you know, and, and he was there for a few minutes and then said, I'm out you know, yeah. and, and stepped out. It was still that powerful for him 70 something years later, but I carry all of that perspective with me as we're getting, getting ready to do it. And yes, uh, so short, long answer to a very good question, but um, um, I do feel called <laughs> to do well, this. And to use the play on words, but I think that it's appropriate, convicted, convicted to do this project. That's definitely one of the reasons that we, uh, one of my personal reasons where, where the title truth and conviction, you know, means that, you know, of course, of course, there are, there's a lot of nuance to that title and, and, and meaning and being convicted of a crime, being convicted to do what is right, all those sure. kinds of things. But, but there is a deep sense of, of conviction that you know, I've, I've got to tell this story, you know, and I'm not going to stop until I do. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be cool to, uh, I think, you know, personally, and then also as an outsider to be able to, to see, you know, as the project comes into fruition, as people join on board and, you know, are able to make something like this happen, how that uh, conviction then becomes realized. And even the things that you have no idea sort of lay in store for you within this project can kind of come about, right? Like God will be like, yeah, do this. And you're like, oh, well, clearly he wants me to do this because this thing. And yeah. And then you get 10 years down the road and you're like, oh yeah, but that was not it at all. It was totally B, C, D, H, J, you know, all the way down right. to Z. Um, but we just see that that ABC and God's like, you, you have no idea. You have yeah, no in fact, idea. Usually I only see A or I think yeah. I see A yeah. <laughs> and then B and C and D. And we're somewhere down the alphabet now, actually, you know, for, for most of the time I had written with my writing partner, Ethan Vincent, I'd written a two hour movie. So this was going to be a theatrical release, you know, just to go see a one-off two hour movie. And it wasn't until we actually sat down with the guys at angel studios uh, just a couple of years ago. And they said, we love this, man. We want this to be our next big hit. We think it should be a series and not a, a not a movie. And and frankly, my first reaction was, no, we've got a really good script here. We've got, you know, <laughs> this is going to be a movie. Uh, it's interesting, though, because it was in that same meeting and it was like about 10 minutes later when something in my mind just clicked. It's like all of a sudden I just saw this. Oh, wait a minute a four part limited series. And I saw episode one and I saw how it ended and I saw episode two and I saw the cliffhanger. saw episode three, saw episode four. That, and I wasn't saying any of this out loud. I'm just sitting in this meeting going, oh my goodness, they're right. Mm. <laughs> we can go so much deeper into the characters, into, you know, into this, into the story, the details of the story. Um, I actually went, I didn't even tell my partners at the time. I just went home and started writing a four-part, <laughs> mm. rewriting the whole script and creating a four-part limited series. So that's one of those things where, again, I thought it was going to be this. God said, do this. And I saw A, B, and C. And it wasn't for another, you know, 
18 years or so when finally X, Y, and well, it's probably not X, Y, and Z yet, but yeah. uh, QR and S or yeah. something <laughs> appeared and said, it's going to be more than you thought it was going to be. You know, it's going to be this. Do you think that similar to the chosen, there will be an appeal for uh, Christendom or just humanity in general in in the story? I think that's one of the tremendous things. And obviously, uh, you know, uh, we interviewed the director. His name is escaping me from um, the chosen yeah, long before it was sort of adopted by the LDS church and then second season filmed uh, in Goshen. Like we interviewed him and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm I. I know about you Mormon people, but this is just kind of a, a separate project. And, and now it seems to be almost adopted by us. And we're like, yeah, blur the lines. We created this almost. Uh, do you feel yeah. like that, that this story, the story, the story of Helmut Hubner can be adopted into a greater, you know, Christian or even greater humanity? Yes. The short answer. It has to, and it does. It's, it's a story. It transcends specific faith beliefs. It transcends party politics. That's very important to me. We have people from way out on the right who love this story. And we have people from way out on the left who love this story um, and see through their lens, you know, they see, and it, it's, I think it's because again, it, it, it exemplifies those universal principles, you know, of sacrifice and truth and standing up and those things that, you know, regardless of whether one is a member of our church or Protestant or evangelical or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever, you know, that they are, um, it's going to, it's going to appeal. Even if they're atheist, I really feel that it's, it's one of those stories that just, you know, it reaches us in a really, reaches me in a really deep way. And I can see that it has reached, it has reached others in the same way. Yeah. It's an exciting project, uh, one that I wish you just had any passion for, Matt. I just wish that you had exuded any passion in the time that we had talked today. It'd be that much easier for people to get on to the link that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, joking aside, seriously, so cool. And the excitement that I can feel from you and being able to see your face as you talk about the experiences that you've had with this story, the excitement that you bring, uh, you, you know, your life's work, essentially. I mean, it has I, become I, that. Yeah, yeah. And who would have thought, who would have thought that, that boy in, you know, 1982, that you, uh, that as you watched that, that this would become your life's work um, to, to share this story. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling, sir? And if so, what is it? Can I, is that a church calling? Like you a... can interpret these questions however you would like. Okay. Um, yeah, I do have, I do have a calling that is higher than my church calling or even this calling to make this film. Um, I have a calling to be a, the best husband hmm. and the best father and now grandfather that I can be That that's the most important thing. And I mean, I fail at it again all the time, but I'm, that's that for me, I try to put that at, at the top. That's awesome. And, and, <laughs> It's funny as you talk about being a grandpa, it, it, uh, it, it exudes the idea that, you know, we have kids so that we can have grandkids. <laughs> like you're like, yeah, you know, it ain't a lie. Kids were tough, but being a grandpa, this is, this is the, the greatest thing. So I don't know if you can, you can't see that day. I yeah. carry around a photo of my granddaughter and I just share it with strangers. It's, yeah. 
<laughs> it's the best thing ever. <laughs> uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, this may be more church specific. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Uh, one that I've had before and I loved it. And it was just teaching gospel principles, mm. you know, teaching for people who are new in the church or just want to stay, stay with the basics. I, I loved it. Yeah. That's it. I'd, I'd do that again. Anytime. The final question that we ask everyone, we also ask that you interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Man, okay. I know this is radio, so I got to hurry and say something. No, you're fine. Because the best part is, if you take a really long time, I just edited it right out. (laughs) That's right. Um, The favorite part of my faith is Jesus. I just, you know, and it's not, it's not exclusive to my faith, but man, that's it. For me, it really all does come down to, um, to Jesus and his love that is overwhelming and that I can feel just, you know, I just get a glimpse of it, but, but I know that I believe that the, the universe would fall apart if it weren't for Jesus. And, uh, just that, that for me is the favorite part that, that in my faith, I feel like I have a, a deeper, but, but not anywhere near comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is. And, and that for me is what it all comes down to. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 